Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. The woke madness in history education is off the rails. Well, how do we change it? McClanahanAcademy.com. And because you listen to this podcast, if you use the coupon code PODCAST at checkout, you get 25% off every day, all day, 365 days a year on every class at McClanahanAcademy.com. So go to McClanahanAcademy.com, use coupon code PODCAST at checkout, and get a real history education at 25% off. We have yet another bad historian take on insurrection. We'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. This is B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about that, but if you're getting this in November of 2023, use that coupon code BLACKFRIDAY23 at checkout. You've got a couple of days left to do it and get 35% off every class at McClanahan Academy. I mean every class, including the bundles, which are already discounted. So you get a great deal, 35% off. Just use your coupon code BLACKFRIDAY23 at checkout. You keep this podcast free of charge and you get awesome content on the back end. You can also support it, of course, by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can go to Spotify for podcasters. You can uh, throw a few pennies my way there or click on the super thanks button if you're watching on YouTube. But as always, you can painlessly support the show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the podcast. Let people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Leave a text review. Leave a five-star review. Comment on YouTube for the algorithm. Do all those things to get more eyes and ears on the show. And send me those show requests. I do want to see what you want to hear. All right. Well, we've got a judge in Colorado. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago who has now decided that Trump did engage in insurrection, but he didn't violate the 14th Amendment. So Trump is now allowed to be on the ballot. This will get appealed, I'm sure. And it's going on. I I predicted this would happen. I thought that perhaps this would get appealed to the Colorado Supreme Court. Now, I predicted that the judge would probably side with the left. She did in a way, but then backed off of that entirely. I don't think that that judge in Colorado was going to be the center of attention and block herself, block Trump from being on the ballot in Colorado. But I do think the Colorado Supreme Court could do it. And of course, um, I also think that once that happens, you're going to see the Judiciary Act of 1789 invoked, and then Trump's attorneys will appeal to the Supreme Court. I think this is going to get to the Supreme Court at some point. But right now, Trump is still on the ballot. He's won all of these all these cases in these states where they're trying to keep him off. He hasn't he hasn't lost any of those yet. So Trump is still steamrolling ahead. He still is the odds-on favorite to be the Republican nominee. I don't think that anyone's going to knock him out, even though Nikki Haley, of course, has got a lot of establishment momentum right now. That's going to fade. I'll talk about that in another episode this week, but that'll fade. Uh, Trump is at a point where I think he's certainly going to be the nominee. And, of course, we're going to see what's going to happen with the Democrats if they're going to actually renominate Joe Biden or if he drops out. I mean, they're, they're panicking there. Again, something else I'll talk about this week. But historians can't leave this alone. When I say historians, I mean activists. 
The activists, the establishment activists in American, the American Academy cannot leave this alone. They are going through a full court press to try to get Trump labeled an insurrectionist and ineligible for office. And they're doing it based on the new constitution, which is the 14th Amendment. Now, I've talked about that on this podcast. That is the new constitution. We don't have a constitution anymore as far as the ratified constitution of 1788-1789. That constitution doesn't matter. The 14th Amendment matters. The 1868 constitution of the 14th Amendment matters. It's the only thing that matters. In fact, again, we shouldn't even worry about the original document. We just worry about the 14th Amendment. Congress has unlimited powers under the 14th Amendment. Unlimited powers. They can do whatever they want under the 14th Amendment. Pretty much. Okay. Now, you could say, well, yeah, but they can't, they can't violate the Bill of Rights. All right. So basically, if you want to say that, what we've got, as long as the Supreme Court decides with this, but what Congress does now is just pass whatever legislation they want and let the courts deal with it. That is the unwritten model of the British Constitution. This is important. The British don't have a written constitution. The founding generation, at the state and federal level, decided that the best way forward was to have a written constitution. Those written constitutions would then limit the powers of the government because you codified what they could do, and then, of course, they couldn't do anything but what was written down. Now, the way that the Constitution was sold to the states in 1787, this is James Wilson in the State House Yard speech, October of 1787, he said, look, if it doesn't say the federal government can do it in the Constitution, the written Constitution, they can't do it. The states, though, have unlimited powers. Now, that is a really interesting position, and I've got another really interesting story to talk about with Oregon. The states have unlimited powers unless they are restricted by their own constitutions, you see. So that's an important distinction to make. We can't, we can't lose sight of that. But historians are going through a full court press now to try to get Trump as an insurrectionist, quote-unquote, barred from holding office. They can't leave this alone. They think the 1860s are an example, and when it doesn't work with, say, Jefferson Davis, then they have to pivot to James Longstreet. And that's exactly what's happened in this piece at Time Magazine. Well, if Trump isn't Jefferson Davis, or maybe he is Jefferson Davis, uh, but that, that label isn't sticking. So we have to say, he, well, he's not James Longstreet. Now, when I, was a, when I was younger, there was a professor that would teach American history in a way that would use these biographies as an example of a particular period of time. And this professor, he was a leftist, but he was a... Uh, I would say more of an honest leftist. Uh, he liked James Longstreet. He would use Longstreet as an example of Reconstruction, because to him Longstreet was the was the shining example of what the South should have done. The South should have been James Longstreet, but they went down a different path during Reconstruction. So if you don't know James Longstreet, who of course was at the end of the war Lee's right hand man after Stonewall Jackson was killed. In 1863, Lee relied much more on Longstreet. Longstreet took a lot of blame for the loss at Gettysburg by the Confederate Army. Uh, he didn't attack when Lee wanted him to attack. But there's a lot of different kinds of arguments about whether Longstreet was as bad as people have made him out to be or if he was better. And because of his post-war political career, he's been he was blacklisted in the South. So after the war is over, Longstreet decides he's going to be a Republican. He was good friends with U.S. Grant, and Longstreet essentially turns coat. This is what 
the Southerners called Scalawags, right? He's a Southerner that supported Reconstruction. He's a turncoat. So he decides he's going to support Reconstruction. And even in Louisiana, there was actually, this is the one monument in the South that you could say was put up solely for race. There was actually a riot in Louisiana against uh, minority government there. And uh, Longstreet put that down. This was a riot based almost exclusively on race. And so Longstreet was instrumental in putting down that riot. So we've got Longstreet working in a way that people would say was detrimental to Reconstruction. And Southerners never forgave him for it, or detrimental to Southern efforts in Reconstruction. He was favoring Union efforts in Reconstruction, United States efforts. Southerners never forgave him for it. Now, that's important, because what this historian, her name is Elizabeth Varon, I've talked about her on this show before several times. Elizabeth Varon teaches history at University of Virginia, she wrote a, a really interesting book entitled This Union. It was actually pretty good. But when you read her, her political editorials, they are really bad. And she is no better than any other activist historian who goes out and tries to find some 1860s example for why you know this thing or that thing should be done. And, and, and I'll say this because I can find 1860s examples to show that I mean, to prove otherwise, right? That, that what, they're, what they're trying to say here doesn't work. So I'll get into that when we talk about insurrection. There's examples everywhere. You can even do it in the founding generation. Now, of course, I talk a lot about it, the original Constitution. I'm aware that the original Constitution, there are people that oppose the way that I, I argue it was ratified. There were people running around that had a different view of that. But the majority spoke in this way. And if we're going to look at the original Constitution, what she's trying to do is say, this is originalism based on the 14th Amendment. I get it, but is it? And uh, we know that when you look at the Jefferson Davis trial and how uh, Salmon P. Chase looked at that and he said, okay, well, the insurrection, uh, the section three of the 14th Amendment, which is the section that would bar former Confederates from holding office, that was self-enforcing. I've talked about this on the show. That was self-enforcing. So then Trump was barred without any congressional action. He said that to Trump's lawyer, I'm sorry, Trump, to Jefferson Davis's lawyers, but then later went back on that when it finally went to, there were certain cases dealing with that. He said, no, 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 we have to do this in a different way. Congress has to be involved. The courts would have to be involved. It's something different. So I think Chase was looking for a way out of the trial. And Cynthia Nicoletti, who wrote a very good book on the Jefferson Davis trial, Secession on Trials, the title of the book, actually points that out. Chase was looking for a way out. He didn't think, perhaps, that the United States could win their case. So, that said, let's look at this Varen piece. This is at Time Magazine. It's not a long piece. And it was published a, a couple of weeks ago. But the question is, what history says about the insurrection clause in Trump? What history says about the insurrection clause? So again, historian Elizabeth Varon is trying to say, history says this, and examples say this. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of counterexamples to this and ask if this is insurrection or not. She says, should Donald Trump be barred from office for his role in the January 6, 2021 insurrection? So again, just the mere fact that these people are saying this was an insurrection is dislodged from historical example. Now, what these people are really trying to do, 
is make any action against their preferred political party candidate position insurrection. Any opposition to them is insurrection. This is what they want. This is what the Republicans wanted in the 1860s. They want anything against them to be insurrection. If you oppose their stupid lockdowns, that's insurrection. If you oppose their ridiculous DEI initiatives, that's insurrection. It's all insurrection. We know, as the January 6th tapes have now been released, that there were people that were engaged in violence at the United States Capitol. We know this. We've seen all of that. We also know that there were a lot of people who weren't. And when Trump urged his supporters to go to Washington, to go tell the people that you want action on this, he wasn't engaging in insurrection. He was, in, he was invigorating his supporters in a political cause. No different than any other Democrat or Republican who's organized their people and said, you need to make your voice heard. He believed the election was stolen from him. We had Democrats saying the same thing in 2016. They were talking about marching on you know, various places and disrupting all kinds of things. But that was not insurrection. But Trump was insurrection. Now, the people that have been arrested for that should be, should be convicted of vandalism, theft. The guy that walked out with Pelosi's uh, speaker platform should be convicted of theft. That was theft. He stole property. The people that busted in windows and broke down doors and did whatever they could to get into the Capitol or to vandalize the Capitol should be charged with vandalism. Were they committing insurrection? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. They weren't trying to overthrow the government. There was no overthrow of the government here. And Trump, by the mere fact that he left office, shows that there wasn't an insurrection. If Trump had tried to stay in office and organized an armed resistance to his, to his removal from office in January 2021, you could say that was an insurrection, but he didn't do any of that. He left office. He was gone. Now, he's challenged the results, but that's not an insurrection either to say these, these results aren't legitimate or we don't believe in these results. We want a recount. We want legal investigation. We want all this stuff. That's not insurrection. But what the Democrats and the leftist allies and the activist historians are trying to do is make opposition to them an insurrection. That's important. Okay? That's important. Now, this piece was written before the judge in Colorado had made her decision. But Varen says this. The lawsuit currently being heard before the U.S. District Court in Denver says, yes, history is on trial as both sides grapple with a key question. How did Congress intend to apply Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which disqualified insurrectionists from future office holding? So notice what she's done there. Donald Trump is an insurrectionist. Insurrectionists are barred from holding office. He should be barred from holding office. The first paragraph tells you all you need to know about Elizabeth Barron. She is an activist. That's all she is. The, the evidence be damned, that's what she is. This is her position. Now, I would not say that any Democrat who's, who's gone out and challenged or criticized elections is an insurrectionist. I would say that they are partisans engaged in political warfare, but they are not insurrections. They've not tried to, they've, they've not tried to take power. That's the other thing. Insurrection would be you are trying to dislodge and take power illegally from the legally constituted or legitimate authority. Trump was not trying to do that. He was asking for the Senate to do 
what he thought could be done. And what historians have said, well, yeah, this is possible based on the 1800 election, for example, for the vice president of the United States. And I've talked about this way back in 2021 for the vice president of the United States to make a determination on electoral college votes. Okay, so this wasn't anything that was insurrection. It's based on history. Now, let's continue because she gets into James Longstreet. She says, we can gain valuable insights into Congress's intentions by looking at the case of Confederate General James Longstreet, whose fate hung in the balance in the spring of 1868, as lawmakers staged one of their earliest debates on the application of Section 3. The discussion hinged on whether Longstreet and other Confederates were sufficiently repentant to warrant restoring their right to hold office. Now, did they bend a knee enough? Did they genuflect to honest Abe? Did they go and did they cry on his casket? In 1865, did they did they beg the Republicans for forgiveness for all of their sins? Did they get holy water splash on them? Did they swear on the Constitution? Did they raise the right hand and swear on the Constitution, or raise their left hand, whatever? Did they do that? Did they swear on the Constitution? They would no longer resist the federal government. Did they do any of that? Were they repentant enough? So it's not just the, the section three. How much, how much uh, sorrow did they show for their actions? Did they bow their head enough? Did they wear black long enough? Look at this. This is what her, this is what her, her, her historical evidence is. Well, these people didn't, uh, didn't bow their head enough. Uh, we know James Longstreet did, and so he was certainly allowed back in. What he did was say, I'm going to support you Republicans. Okay, you're good. That's all that happened there. This is ridiculous. Now, let me ask, and I would ask other historians this. So, James Longstreet and other Confederates engaged in insurrection. What about Union, Union Army officials who would do really terrible things during elections in the 1860s? Were they insurrectionists? For example, in Delaware, when the Union Army occupied the Capitol building and slept in the House chamber. In fact, the commanding officer slept on the speaker's platform. Is that an insurrection? You have a military occupation of a, of a legislative house without any martial law declared, without anything going on. You just have the military sent in. Is that an insurrection? Is the government using the military to intimidate voters? Is that insurrection? I would say that's insurrection. The military above the civil power, that's insurrection. How about when you had to vote in Delaware? Now remember, these aren't this isn't secret ballot. You go in and you have to publicly show who you're voting for. You have to walk under crossed bayonets to get to the ballot box. This is documented. And you submit your, your vote. And if it's not a Republican, you're pulled aside and you have to take an oath of allegiance. And we know that those votes were often taken out and stuffed with Republican votes. Is that an insurrection? I mean, this is a real question. Is that insurrection? Because what you're doing there is trying to swing the election in favor of the Republican. When you have the Union cavalry parading around political meetings, is that insurrection? Certainly intimidation. You're saying that if you're not a Republican, if you're not sufficiently Republican, 
you might face violence. Is that insurrection? I would say it is. It's the military over the civil power. And you might be preventing elections from either taking place or the right outcome of those elections based on the will of the voters. So Varen says, repentance was the prerequisite for removing the barrier to holding office. Repentance. So this isn't even legal, right? This is nothing in here. All that they needed to do was bow a knee. That was the prerequisite for removing the barrier to holding office. So the 14th Amendment, Section 3 is there. It doesn't, it doesn't need any other mechanism to not be in effect if somebody just says, well, I'm sorry. And if you say that and you show that you're sufficiently repentant, then you can be in office again. You say, I mean, this is just absolute lunacy. This is the rule of men, not the rule of law. It's what she's talking about here. The law doesn't matter. All that matters is you show that you're sorry. What is this? I mean, you think of it. When, when is that ever, when is that ever part of the rule of law? Well, you know what? I know we've got laws in the books for preventing murder. And if you commit murder, well, you know, if you just show you're sorry enough, well, then that's all that matters. I'm really sorry about that. I, I, I didn't mean to do it. Okay. This is what she's actually saying here, essentially. Now, we can talk about whether, you know, the insurrection, whether the Confederate army was actually engaged in insurrection or not. They're searching for independence. That's not insurrection. We can get into all that. But... Just, just take this in the, in the logical direction. The law is only based on repentance. Now, she would say, well, no, 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 only Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. This is just ridiculous. It's, it's absolutely stupid. And this is where these people are. That thinking indicates that the men who crafted and best understood the purpose of the 14th Amendment intended to bar someone like Trump, a recalcitrant, unrepentant insurrectionist from holding office. Anticipating the 14th Amendment's imminent ratification that summer, Congress considered a bill proposed by Illinois Republican Representative John Franklin Farnsworth to preemptively remove the Section 3 disability from a long list of Southerners who sought amnesty. They were largely former office holders who, having broken their oaths of loyalty to the United States Constitution and sided with the Confederacy, sought to renew their allegiance and regain their rights. So, we go back to before the 14th Amendment. We're going to get it ratified in 1868, which it wasn't really ratified, but it's going to happen, 1868. So then we've got John Franklin Farnsworth saying, all right, we've got all these people that want their rights back, and they've shown that they're repentant. Now, the real question is, was, was this, look, this is, what, this is what Andrew Johnson essentially said. This is what Abraham Lincoln's point was. All you got to do is take the oath of allegiance, and you're good, right? I mean, that's, that's all it requires. So would the radicals have sided with this is the real question. One theme more than any other dominated the congressional debates, repentance. Farnsworth and the supporters of his bill insisted that they would only restore the right to hold office to those who had shown proper repentance since the war. <laughs> well, how do you measure that? Well, she says, ex-Confederates needed to offer evidence of their con contrition by renouncing rebellionism, rebe uh, rebelism, I'm sorry, promoting peace, obeying the law, upholding the Constitution, and encouraging a spirit of national loyalty in others. Well, would that include Robert E. Lee? 
I mean, he did all these things. What, but would he? But no, no, because only the people that became essentially Republicans would have been allowed for this. Relief from Section 3 disabilities was intended, as Farnsworth put it, for one who now puts his shoulder to the wheel to support the government. Now, the bill was agreed to. There were 76 people who didn't vote for it. Right? It was a two-thirds majority for this. But there was a lot of debate about whether this would get or consider a wholesale, wholesale amnesty or whether it was going to be just these few people. And of course, all the names weren't read and there was some question about who was on it and who wasn't on it. But the question is, does this show that the radical Republicans were interested in the rule of law or the rule of men? Because again, the people on the list had primarily become Republicans. That's important. She says, moreover, on, the, on a practical... Again, this was partisan. It was purely partisan. They weren't interested in someone like Robert E. Lee, who wasn't a Republican, getting amnesty. That wasn't going to happen. It was only people they thought deserved it. Moreover, on a practical level, she says, repentance was linked to national security. The Republicans who controlled Congress calculated that diehard rebels who refused to concede that the cause was lost were a clear and present danger to the peace. If enough Confederates were not willing to join or work with or abide the Republican Party, the South would fall back in the hands of secessionists. Now again, this is the point. Or abide by the Republican. What they didn't want was the South to not be Republican. That was the whole point of Reconstruction. It was forced political conversion of the South. You disfranchise a large number of people who are going to vote against you, you enfranchise, a large number of people are going to vote for you, and you create a political majority. That's what the Republicans were worried about. The people in that list were sufficiently repentant. In other words, they became Republicans, or at least Republican-leaning, and that's what guided. So if Donald Trump would just say, I'm sorry, I'm a Democrat now, maybe that would be enough repentance. This is just ridiculous. As Senator Jacob Howard of Michigan, one of the drafters of the 14th Amendment, put it, I am bound, if I cannot have indemnity for the past, to have at least permanent security for the future. And I will knowingly relieve no one of them from his disabilities who still harbors in his heart the spirit of rebellion. Well, how do you know that? Again, if, are we going into thought police now? The spirit of rebellion. And by the spirit of rebellion, they meant we're going to vote Democrat. You see, this is all about politics. Barron doesn't say that. The Republicans in the 1860s were the most rabid political partisans of the 19th century. This is about politics. Longstreet presented Congress with this most difficult case. On the one hand, he boldly and publicly renewed his allegiance to the United States in 1867 when he announced in letters published in his hometown of New Orleans that he would support Congress's program of reconstruction, which included securing voting rights for black Americans. On the other hand, as the general of the 1st Corps in the Army of Northern Virginia, he was the third most prominent ex-rebel after Pre Confederate President Jefferson Davis and General Robert E. Lee. Now, you can make a case that he wasn't the third most prominent ex-Confederate. What about Vice President Alexander H. Stevens, who showed up, was actually elected to Congress, and the Congress refused to seat him? I would say he's a higher-profile former Confederate or prominent ex-Confederate, higher-profile. And there were, of course, others. Longstreet was up there, but there you can make an argument there were others. 
and thus he had a great deal of death and destruction for which to repent. Longstreet could potentially do more good or more harm than any other applicant for Congress's mercy. Congressmen opposed removing the Section 3 disqualification from a rebel as prominent as Longstreet questioned whether he had demonstrated sufficient atonement for his great crime. Representative Samuel Shellabarger of Ohio asked pointedly why the authors of the rebellion ought to now be enabled to become our rulers. Those who favored absolving Longstreet offered a spirited retort. They argued that he become a true Union man as he was before a true Confederate. He had suffered the most violent denunciations and ostracism from ex-Confederates because his contrition was known, open, and thorough, and his aid to Reconstruction diligent and earnest. Crucially, Longstreet's supporters in Congress brandished the testimony of Union war hero General U.S. Grant, Longstreet's old friend and West Point classmate who vouched for the Confederate's general's thorough repentance. In the end, despite the uneasiness of doubters who felt that the list, long list of Section 3 petitions had not been deeply enough vetted, Congress passed Farnsworth's bill in June 1868, and Longstreet, along with hundreds of others, was cleared for future office holding. And of course, the list grew, she says, as the debates played out. So all this passed through. So the radical Republicans got their way. But, again, who, why, because these people were going to support Republicans. That's it. That's what they thought. This is about politics more than anything else. It wasn't about contrition. It was about power. And if you understand that in the Republicans, all of this makes sense. If you understand that about Varon and the leftists, all this makes sense. They don't want Donald Trump to win because they don't think that they have power. You can make a case that Donald Trump is just a 1930s New Deal Democrat. It's not like a whole lot's going to change in Washington. It didn't in the four years he was there. The lessons for our current moment are twofold. First has to do with accountability. These con those congressional Republicans who worried that they did not have sufficient guarantees of Southern loyalty were right to worry. Longstreet himself proved to be a good bet. He ardently defended Reconstruction, even led Louisiana's interracial militia in defending the Republican government there against a white supremacist coup in 1874. But he proved to be a rarity. Most other white Southerners, including many of those who gestured at compliance and contrition, ended up opposing Reconstruction and bringing it down in a maelstrom of anti-black vigilante violence that imposed one-party democratic rule and Jim Crow segregation on the South. All right, so wait a second. So contrition to Elizabeth Barron meant supporting the Republicans. She basically admits it here. The whole point of contrition was, are you Republican? Do you support our policies? So if you don't support the Democrats, if you don't support DEI, if you don't support you know, whatever crazy thing they're doing, then you're not. You are an insurrectionist. You're an insurrectionist. It's all just, you have to read between the lines, but that's what these people are arguing. If you oppose them, you're an insurrectionist. That's it. This is why people don't trust historians, because this is the case she's making. It's not just this case. All right, so we had the Republicans say this. You have to dig into why these people were doing it. It's not just sufficient to say, well, this is Republicans did this, and it was a... Well, she tells you, these people wanted these repentant Southerners to support Reconstruction. And if they didn't support Reconstruction, then they're insurrectionists. So Democrats became insurrectionists. The opposition party were insurrectionists. She's telling you what she thinks without actually saying it. If you oppose Elizabeth Warren, if you oppose the Republicans, or if you oppose now the Democrats, 
or the never Trumpers, wherever they are, you're an insurrectionist. Plain and simple. This is just stupid. The second lesson has to do with the politics of repentance. Seen in the context of Congress's emphasis on contrition, it is clear that Donald Trump is exactly the kind of insurrectionist who Section 3 was meant to disqualify. Recalcitrant, utterly unregenerate, brazenly threatening retribution and violence and fomenting division and disorder. In other words, first of all, he's not an insurrectionist, but in other words, he doesn't agree with Varen's politics. And of course, she has links out here in this article to all kinds of stuff. You know, time, uh, uh, different different articles about New York Times and and uh, the New York Magazine. And uh, I mean, this is this is her point. If, she, if he doesn't agree with the establishment, he's an insurrectionist. What she has done in this article is labeled anyone who opposes the Democrats' position on January sixth as an insurrectionist. That's what she's done. That's the whole point. The Republicans of the Reconstruction era will be shocked at our current state of affairs where Americans neither ask nor expect Trump's repentance. Well, I would say the Republicans of the Reconstruction era would not be shocked by the Democrats' efforts. <laughs> they wouldn't be shocked by anything that's going on in power because this is what they would do too. Exact same thing. They did it. And the Republican Party of the 1860s, by the way, is the current Republican Party. The establishment in the Republican Party is the 1860s Republicans. Nothing's changed there. I've talked about that many times. Nothing's changed. If Section 3 cannot stop a remorseless insurrectionist like Trump from seizing the reins of power, then it truly has been drained of whatever meaning and promise it might have once had. Yeah, sure. Now, of course, the reason she wrote this is because she's got a new book out on James Longstreet. Promoting her book, right? So, this is the problem, okay? it's She's telling you what the goal of the Republicans was without actually telling you what the goals of Republicans were. It was, it was power, right? It was power. They wanted power. And when the these people took an oath and they said, yeah, we're repentant, but then they voted against Reconstruction, well, that's not being repentant. Repentant would have mean submission, it would have meant bowing a knee and being sufficiently radical Republican. That was the point. All right. I had to talk about this article because it's ridiculous. Uh, and these activists masquerading as historians are doing a lot of damage to the profession. See you next time on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.